because it was just really prayerful experience for me. It was really cool. So I would urge you to do fun, creative things like that. Uh, Newsflash, Dick Best. Uh, if you know Dick, he's in his 60s. Uh, he's a member here and uh, just became a member, actually. We were going to announce him, um, but we're going to put that off until he gets better. But he uh, was riding his bike and went through the back windshield of a car. <laughs> he's okay. He uh, it smashed up his nose pretty badly and big black eyes and closed, you know, swelled shut and had some stitches all over his face. But he's doing well. He's, like, recovering like crazy, like, really fast. He had uh, surgery on his nose the next day uh, by a plastic surgeon, so... God bless him. Pray for him. <laughs> he said he was going to be here today, but I'm like, no, I don't think you're going to be here today, dude. <laughs> so, um, but he wanted to say thank you for, to all of you uh, for praying and for uh, the phone calls and the visits and everything. I, it was really, Dick, is, his family lives in Chicago, so he's pretty much on his own here. And, and uh, so it was nice to have him uh, really be surrounded by the church. Chuck and I went out there and spent the night out there. Uh, the first night he was in the hospital, it was nice. So um, let me pray for us and uh, we'll get started. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and you would fill this room right now with your presence. We ask that more than anything, that, that, that your presence would fill this atmosphere around us and in our hearts, in our minds, that you would reign as king right now, Jesus, in all of our thoughts in this place, that nothing that is against you, nothing that opposes you, anything that is spiritual of nature or uh, humanistic of nature or of our flesh would be pushed out of the room right now, that it would be pushed off of this property and far enough away from us that we would be able to hear and see you clearly. Anoint this room, anoint these people, anoint my words. Let us hear from you. We know that we're sitting here doing this. We are people. You're people doing this. But we know that you have said that you work through the church, that you work through your people. So we ask that we would be vessels of your grace this morning, vessels of your message, vessels of what you want to say to us. We love you so much, and we just want to be better followers of you as a result of what happens here today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, another shooting in San Diego, if I'm not mistaken. I just heard this this morning on the way in. God bless those people. Uh, be praying for them. It was a synagogue, I guess, yesterday in, in, uh, in San Diego, California. I think there's one who is dead and a few others wounded. So um, just, just pray that this crazy madness stops. This is... Uh, a sign of our culture. It really is. So uh, m- now more than ever, just people need the message of the gospel, and we want to be faithful to bring that to them. Um, anyway, John was appropriate for this morning because in light of this financial peace class that starts tomorrow, which you can still sign up for, um, I want to I spend the next two weeks just talk about, talking about faith and finance, a very important conversation for the church. Uh, you might get a little sweaty when I say that. Don't, don't be nervous. Um, this is not, I don't mean for this to be uncomfortable for anybody, but I, I, I want to speak about it unapologetically. I think it's an important, uh, faithful conversation to have with the church, right? Uh, and so we begin today in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, 
Uh, and Ecclesiastes, if you know, is all about uh, li- the life of wisdom, which comes from living life under the direct direction or, or guidance of God, as opposed to the unwise life, which sort of disregards all of God, God's wisdom and or God's guidance, and we just kind of live for ourselves and live for whatever pleases us and all that stuff. A uh, little side note, Ecclesiastes is the book that brought me to faith. Um, just I really resonated with it, loved it. Now, in previous chapters of Ecclesiastes, leading up to chapter 5, the author puts forth a few axioms that I thought were helpful to to tell you about this morning, uh, about what it means to be a wise person, because that's what he's talking about, is seeking the Lord's wisdom. And he says, number one, a wise person puts limits on desire to find healthy balance. In other words, uh, they have self-control. They don't let their desires run wild, you know, and, and there's something about living out the wisdom of God in that, right? Uh, number two, a wise person lives by promise and not by explanation. I love that one. I just want to stop there for a moment and say that twice. A wise person lives by promise and not by explanation. There are so many things in life that we would sit there, we would love for Jesus just to show up, sit down next to, to me and say, okay, before you go do this thing, this is how it's going to work out, and this is how it's all going to play out, and this is how you're going to be okay, don't worry, this is exactly what's going to happen, but that's not going to happen, we know that. It's not how life is. But Jesus promises us in various things throughout the scriptures, and to live by the promise is to live by trust. Not to sit there and worry and get caught in the weeds of worry and anxiety and trying to have everything, you know, laid out for me perfectly and all that stuff. It's just an unreal expectation. But a wise person lives by promise and not by explanation. Uh, Number three, a wise person values sacrifices for and invests in people. They disciple others. They they build others up, things like that. A wise person walks in reliance and faith through life's seasons. It's a good one. A wise person understands wisdom is that which makes sense in light of eternity. In other words, they don't have the short-term view of life. It's not all about my instant gratification. It is the long-term view of life, right? Um, A wise person chooses, ah, there's a newsflash, right? A wise person chooses to be happy. Do you know you can choose to be happy? Chooses to be happy and does good, does good things in the world for other people. A wise person is not cynical, but hopeful. A wise person is boldly respectful, full of integrity, and obedient to the voice of God. And I would say they don't just say that they have integrity, they actually have integrity. That's a difference, right? And in chapter 5, finally, um, here we will see that he also says a wise person invests their resources in the kingdom of God. A wise person invests their resources in the kingdom of God. And the writer returns in chapter 5 to this, uh, this issue he addressed in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, and that is the futility of, of, of finding meaning and wealth, of living for money, or li- living for you know, these things that make us look grand or whatever, or maybe we make, makes us feel safe. And he begins by speaking of the oppression which occurs in a system when people seek to find comfort and meaning and wealth, which leads to an absolute disregard for other people, an absolute not caring of other people, right? 
He says, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. Christians don't get all, you know, stuck, you know, like, ah, you know, just like we expect these things. We understand the world is full of all kinds of evil and garbage. It's also full of all kinds of good and wonderful things as well, right? Like jazz at South on Broad Street. It was wonderful. The salmon was very good too. But there, there is, you know, there is this thing that we, we understand. We look out in the world and we see craziness and, you know, and hurtful things like San Diego. And we understand there are people out there that are just following their own desires, right? So for one official is eyed by a higher one. And over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the field. So from the farmer to the king, everybody's paying up, right? Think about that. Like each official wringing money from those below them, you know, because each has to pay up to their superiors, extortion extending all the way to the king. You know, I saw this very clearly firsthand in Indonesia. It's why the country blew up the first year we were there and into civil war and we like locked ourselves in the house while tanks rolled down the street and people were being killed all around. You know, it's just, it was nuts because people got sick of it. But when I, when I first moved to Indonesia, um, the, the housing complexes, you know, like we have housing complex, by the way, the first housing complex in America was built in Wayne. I don't know if you know that, but it's on North Wayne Avenue, that neighborhood to the to the right when you're dri- driving up. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But um, it's pretty cool if you, if you think about it. But but when I moved to Indonesia, housing complexes were not uh, a norm. They were, they were only building them in Jakarta, um, you know, w- which was the major city. It's like 12, 13, 15 million people, I think, right now or something like that. And, uh, but in the city I lived, which was still millions of people, the super wealthy lived right next door and right mixed in with the super poor. Everyone mixed together. So my first house was this very modest, small little house. But it was next door to this giant mansion-like structure uh, of the chief of police in the city, the city of millions, right? Chief of police had this huge house. And the neighborhood was, as I said, eclectic. And many other neighbors had only like dirt floors and thatched woven walls that they made themselves by, you know, weaving bamboo together and all that kind of stuff. And I had this little tin can Suzuki van. It was like as big as like four of these chairs. And like, you know, like if you hit something, you were a goner, right? It was just a cheap, cheap, cheap car. And my other neighbors either walked or they had just one little motorcycle for like six family members. They like pile on that thing. It was awesome. You know, throw your goat on there, throw your, all your kids on, put all your jacket on because it's, oh, it's 90 degrees. It's pretty cold outside. It was just nuts. But um, anyway, I digress. But, um, <laughs> but the, the chief of police next door to me had an entourage of fine automobiles, just wonderful, like, Corvettes and BMWs and all these things, you know, and, and, and his, he had a whole entourage of these guys that their sole job was to sit in front of his house all day long and wash his cars. That's all they did. Just a bunch of guys that washed his cars all day long. And you might think, well, wow, they, they play, they pay their police really well. Well, that wasn't really the case. You know, um, he had 12 similar houses with similar cars and entourages at every house all around the country, including in Jakarta, which was really expensive to live, and in Bali, which was one of the best uh, you know, vacation spots in the world, right? He's got these houses all over the place. 
And his salary as a police officer was actually public knowledge, and it was very meager, and nobody could have lived on it. It was nothing. It was nothing. So his wealth was a result of extortion from thousands of police officers underneath him, extending all the way up, you know, uh, all the way up the ladder and, and, and then on to other people above him. The extortion continued in this country all the way to the president, President Suharto at the time, whom I said everybody got sick of this and they burnt down the, you know, the system, right? It's a modern, very clear modern uh, illustration of Ecclesiastes 5, 8, and 9. It reminds us of 1 Timothy 6.10. It says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now, a lot of people misquote that. They say the love of money is the root of all evil. That's not, that's not what it says. It says a root, a, a root of all kinds of evil. So get it right, right? Because it's important to get it right. But the point I'm trying to make is that my neighbor lived this absolute meaningless life. He was not a happy man. We went over to visit him. He was like, he was just not a happy guy, right? Um, He was not content. He was not happy. His love of money had resulted in a total disregard for those he pledged to protect. Now, you could say that he was part of the system and it's hard to change the system. And it's true. We get it. I had a Christian friend that was a cop. And, you know, he was very confessional to me that he at times when he picked people up and arrested them, he would put the gun to their thigh and shoot. And if they wouldn't give him money, because that's what they do. And he's got to pay up. And he goes, Jason, if I don't pay up, I don't I I don't I can't make a living for my family. It was very difficult. It's very difficult. So we judge too quickly sometimes. Right. Let's not be judgmental, but let's just look at look at all the garbage of it. Right. Um, but Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. And this too is meaningless, meaningless. It is absolutely meaningless. Ecclesiastes speaks of life under the sun. He uses that term all over again. A a phrase which means living to find meaning in things without regard to God. A meaningless, a vapid life. Just a poof, you know, it's gone. Doesn't really mean anything. And watching that drama of corruption play out next door to me could have eaten me alive with envy or indignation. Either one, right? Even without wealth in my little tin can Suzuki van, even without wealth, we can be controlled by wealth. You got to understand that. The poor can be as greedy as anybody else, even without being wealthy. It's not about having the material thing, which is the problem, but it's the desire to find meaning in that thing. I could have gotten so twisted up with indignation of the injustice of it all and would have been controlled by wealth even then. Don't be surprised when you see injustice and corruption and things like that. God says to us. But the police officer is extreme. He's an extreme example, isn't he? The real question when we read these things are, do I worry, overly worry, Do I have anxiety about my own finances? Do I worry about how I'm going to live my life, how how safe I'm going to become, right? Am I discontent with what I have? 
right? Uh, or do I see a need in others, but I still hoard only for myself? I never become generous. Becoming generous is actually a very, like, you have to make the decision to do it. I remember somebody in this, this church once uh, sold a car, and they were like, man, I got to give money. No, they sold a business, and they were like, I got to give some money. And they were like, I really don't want to do this, but I should do this. And they wrote that check, and I was like, wow, that was great. It was just great. It was just a lesson in giving. It was wonderful. Uh, where am I? <laughs> um, so these questions are right there in front of us, and we have to think about them, right? The second half of 1 Timothy 6.10 says this. It says, some people eager for money have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. You can wander away from the faith. You can get taken away, and, and when you get taken away, you get rolled about in life, right? That's the danger in worry about all these things. Ecclesiastes actually is a great book that forces us to realize that wisdom in the context of God's kingdom, of living in God's kingdom, is to be satisfied. Is to be satisfied. And when we're not satisfied, it leads us into trouble. It really does. When meaning is sought in wealth, we become hurtful and destructive of ourselves and other people around us. Now, notice I didn't say when we become wealthy. I didn't say that. I said rather when meaning is sought in wealth. Since the wealthy can actually be an extreme blessing to society, to communities, to the church, and whatever, to anybody else around them if they have the right attitude about their wealth. Ecclesiastes 5.12 says, The sleep of the laborer is sweet whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Now, that's not to say that the poor are better. He's not saying that. He's not saying the person who finds, he, he, he actually is saying that the person who finds satisfaction in work, you know, having little or plenty in that is the one who sleeps well. The rich who can't sleep are those, signify those who have made wealth their meaning not just the wealthy per se. You've got to read carefully, right? This is reflected in Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, where it says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Do we believe that? So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I won't be afraid. I won't be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Take it all away from me. You can't steal my peace. I still got Jesus. Some complain no matter how much they make, don't they? Right? <laughs> no matter. I mean, you could get, you give, let them win the lottery. They'll still complain. Right? I, I would love the chance to complain about that. Right? Wouldn't you? I would love that. But <clears throat> income always seems insufficient in the desire to always spend more than your means. That's where it seems in, insufficient. I have a, v, a Vietnamese friend whose parents fled Vietnam back in the 70s uh, during the fighting, during the war there, and he was a boy at that time, but he still remembers the carnage. He remembers bodies in the streets and hanging from telephone poles and things like that. And his father was a Christian, a strong Christian, and he was extremely wealthy, 
Uh, he owned one of the most popular restaurants, really big restaurant in the middle of the city. And before he fled the country with his family, he liquidated, liquidated all of his assets and took all that money and he divided it among his employees and all of their families. And he kept only enough to get his family to America. That was all he kept. So he went from riches to poverty overnight. He had the proper perspective on money. Their lives were much more important than all of that. The lives of others were much more important than all of that. And he ended up on the main line in this big house raising his family due to the help of some local churches that got together and helped them get started. And all of his, ch- all of his children have gone on to be very successful. My friend, one of his children owns three Chick-fil-A's at this point in his life. And, uh, you know, I, I, get a little, I do get a little jealous. I do. Because, you know, I talked to him one day and, you know, and, and he didn't tell me he was going to Hawaii the next day. And the next day I see he's posting about Hawaii. And I'm like, dude, you're in Hawaii? We were just talking yesterday. You didn't tell me. He goes, yeah, I decided to go. Like overnight. I'm like, I can't do that, dude. You know, but, um, but he owns three Chick-fil-A's and he gives away quite a bit of his wealth. Quite a bit of his wealth. Paul said in, in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to be in plenty, right? Paul's the guy that spent time in jail. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. You could add other things to that, whether I'm single or I'm married. Some of you are very miserable in your marriages. Not, no, actually, I can't say that. I, I, I do not have any of you in mind. I, I'm saying generally out there, some of you. I really don't. I really don't. I really don't. I don't know. I, couldn't, I could not pinpoint that in, in our church right now. Uh, some of us are very happy being single. Some of us are very miserable being single, right? You know, it, it takes time. It takes effort to learn to be content in all these situations. Well-fed or hungry in every situation, in plenty or in one. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. We've got to remember, he says that last line in the context of living in plenty and want, right? We always kind of pull it out of context. So why can my friend, my Vietnamese father's, friend's father say that? Why can Paul say this? Because of what their focus was on, right? That he was Jesus-focused. Paul was Jesus-focused, right? His life was centered on the kingdom of God. Money for Paul wasn't, it was a tool to work towards God's kingdom, right? It, it's not a goal in and of itself. Meaning is found in Christ. Meaning is found in working towards the kingdom of God. Ecclesiastes says it's, good, it's a good, honest day's work which gives a person you know, this peace of mind within the context and the meaning of God's kingdom. So sometimes a day's work brings, brings a lot, sometimes a little. Be satisfied. Ecclesiastes 5.15 says, everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. Come in naked and screaming, you go out naked and screaming sometimes, right? You know, they take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. You can't take it beyond the grave, right? And when we can own that, when we can realize that, the, the limitations of our human nature, right, our worry about wealth kind of sort of dissipates a little bit. Doesn't become so important. 
Is it wrong to be ambitious or wealthy? No, it is not. There's nothing in the scriptures that would ever teach that. Is it better to be poor? No, it is not. Nothing in the scriptures ever teaches that either. God doesn't want poverty. I don't think he's happy with that, right? Scripture speaks of a right perspective and balance, though, right? Like he's saying, under the sun, without God, right? We're tempted to seek value in wealth, in these things of life, but that destroys life and community. It doesn't bring life, it brings death when we, when we put all of our hope in those things. And like Paul, when our focus is on Jesus and his kingdom, we learn contentment. We become happier people, more content people, peaceful people. Research shows that happiness is actually governed by three things, two of which are really kind of almost out of our control. It's, it's 50% genetic. You ever notice, like my daughter, Sana, is just like bubbly and happy all the time. Kind of makes some people sick, right? It's like, Sana, calm down, right? You get a little bit, no, I want to hit you. You know, I just want to trip you or pinch you or something to make you cry. You know, like some people are just genetically predisposed to being happy people. And the rest of us are like, you jerk. You know, I wish I was that happy. It's honest, isn't it? Right? (laughs) Secondly, it's 10% circumstances. The things that happen to us in life. The things, the places that we find ourselves in. And then it's 40% about our choices. That's where we really got to learn our lesson. 40% are choices. Sometimes we make choices that get us in a bad spot that make us kind of grumpy. Right? Research also shows that those who focus on the extrinsic goals in life, like money, like image, like status, like popularity, are the most unhappy in life. Apparently, Japan is the most unhappy country in the world because since World War II, these extrinsic goals have been the paramount thing to search for in society, so much so that they've coined this term karoshi, which means uh, working yourself to death in the pursuit of those things. Isn't that sad? Do you got a word for it in your language? However, those who sort of strive towards intrinsic goals in direct opposition to extrinsic goals are the happiest people in the world, right? Goals like personal growth and relationships and the desire to help others. And they say that apparently those three things, along with being physically, a- or physically active, like exercise and things like that, being out and about, and I would even add, out in nature, release dopamine into your brain, right? It, it changes you physically. Remember Paul, 12, Romans 12, 1 and 2. It actually changes you physically. It's like injecting crack into your brain. Amen. You get stoned, get happy, right? I'm just kidding. Um, but someone once said, happiness is living in harmony with the deepest aspirations of life which are possessing Christ and sharing fellowship with God. Happiness is about the direction of desire. Being happy isn't dependent on the contingencies of life or the circumstances of life, but on the ability to keep passion focused on its true goal in the midst of these contingencies. People are happy when their actions line up with the telos or the the purpose or the end goal of God. Justice then can be defined as seeing to the happiness of others. 
to walk in the heart of God naturally takes away a lot of the ills that we suffer in our society. If we were all really truly walking with God, it would really change the world, right? Ecclesiastes 5 urges us to be content with what we have, not to be controlled by wealth. And contentment and happiness go hand in hand. Uh, uh, when we hold on to wealth, wealth lightly, that it doesn't become this big important thing, and we find our meaning in Christ. Not that we deny wealth, right? Or not that we consider money in itself to be evil. It's not evil in itself. It's the root of all kinds of evil sometimes. Rather, we regard money, we regard finances, we regard this conversation as a tool to be used in the advancement of God's kingdom. The question is, what do we do with and how do we regard our money? In Luke 12, 34, where Jesus is instructing people not to worry concerning wealth and sustenance, he says at the end, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your focus, your gaze, your, 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 your goal is, that, that's where your heart's going to be. Salvation is only one aspect of the kingdom of God. You know, Jesus died. We just celebrated the last few weeks. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He rose from the grave for my sins. Amen. I get to heaven. You know, right? I get in the door because of Jesus, what he's done in me. Salvation is only one aspect of the kingdom of God. There are very real, uh, there's this very real um, spiritual power of the Holy Spirit breaking into our reality in the here and now to heal and to restore people, to bring freedom to people, to bring lightness to people. God's called his people to love mercy, to act justly, and to walk humbly with him, Micah 6, 8, which we name this church after to care for and to seek to provide for the basic needs of others when the local church sees need in their community or in their their midst. To build people up, to see everyone as healthy and active, uh, you know, sort of great contributing members to the society, the 40% of happiness, their choices. To get people to make better choices. That's part of the spiritual formation of life. Remember, you're being spiritually formed either one way or the other, either towards Christ or away from Christ. And it's a process that we're a part of in the Christian walk. And what we find out is that God works through the local church as an avenue of help to those who struggle with the 10% of happiness, their circumstances. We, we, we feed into that. We play into that, right? Those who lack basic needs, who, who need physical or emotional or spiritual healing, and we actually practically come in and help in those ways. And we have in this church over the years, and we will continue to do so. But to do that, our treasure has to be all about Jesus. All about Jesus and nothing else. Our hope and our meaning centered on Christ and Christ alone Our wealth then becoming a tool to bring Jesus to greater light in the community around us, in the the world around us, and within our own ranks to care for each other like we did with Dick Best when he went through a windshield of a car on his bicycle, right? 
We get to go over there and bring him sweatpants and T-shirts because they ripped his clothes off <laughs> when he went in the emergency room and, you know, and just pray over him and love him and care for him and see that all of his needs are met when he really needs it, things like that. But to understand where the American church, church's treasury is right now, we need to understand what giving is like in the church in America at this point. <clears throat> God has set this loose standard of 10% of our income, right, which was given to the temple in the Old Testament, which translates to giving to the church, the local church. I believe we give 10% of our income to the local church, the, the, the church that we're a part of. It doesn't get spread out all over the place. I don't, I, that's where my convictions are right? Uh, Kim and I, for instance, and I'll just tell you very plainly, because I think it's important for you to know that uh, we've chosen to give a little bit more than 10% to this church as our giving. And we do that before taxes. And then uh, we support some missionaries beyond that. I have a really good friend that runs an international ministry. We've been friends forever. And I, I support him. I support some other missionaries that I know and love. And, you know, and sometimes we do like one-time giving for different things. And, you know, different things like that. So we, we support beyond 10% sometimes, but um, that's, that's our, you know, locked-in thing that we definitely do. Um, you could give more than 10%. You know, I think Rick, Rick Warren, you know, gave away, like, I forget, like, I think he, kept, he lived on 20% of his, 10% of his salary, and he gave, <laughs> gave 90% of it away. Woo! That's pretty serious right there, right? Um, so you can give more than 10% away. You know, it's not it's whatever the Lord convicts your heart in, right? But, but 10% seems to be a good scriptural standard for which we can aim. And, and the statistics that I'm about to give you are a few years old, but as I looked at them again this past week, I thought, you know, they haven't really changed that much. If anything, they've gotten worse. So I didn't want to redo all the research, so I'll just keep them as they are. And, you know, and when you get to the kind of numbers that we're going to talk about and the disparity between the numbers, it really doesn't matter. The numbers are just big, right? So giving in America, uh, Christian and non-Christian alike, uh, ranges between 1.7 and 1.9% of personal income. In 2001... Members of evangelical churches, which are the biggest givers of all denominations, by the way, gave away on average 4.2% of their, their, their annual income, a number which has declined over the years, although annual household income has in, been steadily rising since 1968, even when you adjust it for infl- inflation. Only three out of 10 20-somethings for all of our talk donated to a church in 2012, which is half the proportion of older adults. Older adults give more. Um, In general, the more money a person makes, the less they are likely to give to other causes. The biggest givers are the super poor and the super rich. The biggest, uh, the, 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 although the, the percentages are still way below 10% for both those crowds, middle-class Americans give away uh, on average 1.2 to 1.4% of their annual income, middle-class Americans. If Christians had given a full 10% of their annual income to the church in 2004, it would have added up to an additional $164 billion dollars. 
Now, you, remember, I'm an artist, John's not. So if I've made some mistakes in my math, by all means, correct me, but don't expect me to be perfectly right. But the numbers are big. And when you get to this size number, it's overwhelming anyway, so it doesn't, you know, a little mistake here and there, it doesn't really matter. It's going to be in the billions. Some of these I actually picked up right off of financial websites, though. But it said that people who categorize themselves as strong Christians, in other words, they go to church more than twice a month, right, uh, you know, uh, made collectively $2 trillion in 2005, and that is more than the gross domestic product of all but six countries. And if they had given a full 10% of that, it would have translated to $133 billion more dollars for the kingdom. At least 20%, 20% of self-identified Christians give $0 to their local church, to the ministry of God, to the kingdom of God at all. The median dollars given by U.S. Christians as a whole is 0.62% of the median income. In other words, $200 for every $32,500 earned. That is 10% of that would have been $3,250, right? So that's way below uh, what Americans give as a whole. Giving has declined as salaries have gone up. We gave more in the Depression era when we were poorer. Now, you can do good in a million different ways, right? It's not all about the money. You can mow your neighbor's lawn. You can make somebody dinner when they need it. You can encourage someone uh, who has a need. You can go visit Dick Best in the hospital, or you can work with our community partners, or you can bake your pastor gluten-free white chocolate macadamia nut cookies. That would be a very good thing to do. It's a wonderful, good works thing to do, Christy Swarkowski. Um, I... I didn't say that out loud, did I? But if it's true that in following Jesus, for walking with Jesus, we're called to care for others and happiness and meaning are actually tied to these things and doing good is largely a financial question, then do we give joyfully? Do we give abundantly? Do we? Because money is a spiritual issue. It's not an embarrassing issue. It's not something you don't talk about at parties. Christians, we, we address these things together as the Christian family. Money's a spiritual issue. It can be a great tool if it's released into God's hands. It really can. If we're truly seeking the kingdom first, then we'll naturally release our resources to, to, to become or to offer an alternative community of hope to the world, a countercultural model based on the grace of God. In Matthew 6, you remember the passage, the, the, the birds of the air and the flowers of the field and how God dresses them up and how he cares about them, won't he care about you and all that kind of stuff. So Jesus says we shouldn't worry about our circumstances. You know, he's talking about our, that all of our needs will be met, addressing the basic needs of life in that whole conversation. God provides and he works through the local church to meet needs. God works through something. He doesn't like... He doesn't say, well, I'll take care of all your needs, and then you come home and blip, there's like a million dollars on the table. That's not how it works. He works through circumstances and people and situations, and definitely through the church, because he said he would. In, uh, so, so if you want to like meditate on Matthew 6, that would be a great thing to meditate on a little bit, right? 
So let's say a church has 100 faithful giving units, about 150 people, 175 people, whatever it is, couples and singles that are giving to to the church, right? And if the median income of that church is $45,000 a year, then at 10%, that would be $450,000 a year. Am I right? Tell the artist he's right. He needs an amen on that one, right? So let's say for argument's sake that the operational budget of that church is uh, of 100 active units is $225,000 a year. We just saw ours a little higher than that, right? Then it would, be, then, then it would mean that we have $225,000 left over for emergencies to, or, or to bless others. It's like, you know, somebody needs a new roof on their house and they can't afford it. Bam! We just get 30 grand right there. Bang! Wouldn't it be awesome? Amen. Let's widen the conversation, right? All, at, at the time of my research, about 73% of Americans called themselves Christians. That's probably de- decreased in the last few years. And at the time, there were 350 million people at the time. That's roughly 230 million people. And so they say the average income in America is about $50,000 a year. So let's say Christians gave on average 2% per year of their income to the local churches. You know, those 73%, right? Which is 1.3% above what they say that Christians give and 8% below 10. Just remember that, right? So that would be $230 billion, but let's cut that in half given many of them are children or they're married, they have one income. So we'll say roughly 150 million giving units. So that would be about $150 billion at 2% of income. But if they gave a full 10%, that would be $575 billion, a difference of $460 billion. That's a lot of money. That's a whole lot of cheddar right there. Yeah, baby, cheddar. What if Christians happily found meaning in Jesus and willingly invested strongly in the kingdom of God, you know, at 10% of their income? What if they did that? And what if we did something crazy and we took $100 billion from that and we, that extra $460 billion and we used it in our general budgets to fix and to upgrade and repair our facilities and pay our staff better. That'd be nice. And give, give them needed breaks and buy them vacation homes in Hawaii. That would be good. No, I'm just kidding. I'm totally kidding. But, um, you know, we, we gave them needed breaks. We gave them training that they needed or we hired the extra staff that we needed and all that kind of stuff. That'd be nice. And we'd still have $360 billion left over. By the way, you guys pay me well. Thank you, by the way. I am not at all discontent. What if we did something even crazier and we took $160 billion of that and we gave it to pay down the national debt? I have no idea how you'd do that. But what if we did it? Right? What if on the news they said the American church got together? They, they, they just like got rid of their denominational lines for one day and they gave $160 billion to pay down the national debt. I mean, I, I don't know how that would be done, but if that kind of organization could happen, how do you think people would view the church? Would it redeem some of the garbage that's gone out about us? What if we took the remaining $200 billion, and we put it all towards missions and poverty and training. And how would that change the world? How would that change the view of the church? How many people would say, man, I want to learn more about this Jesus thing? Do you think people would be more apt to listen if we practically showed that we cared? 
If our treasure was shown practically, practically to be in Jesus and not in the money, through our giving, that we were generous. What if the meaning we find in Jesus made us so light and so happy and so content and so peaceful that it changed that 40% in the area of choices we make and we were just able to do good without worrying about being legalistic or giving just became second nature to us. We became generous people overflowing and what if that change in our choices began to change the 10 percent of the circumstances of us and the community around us and we actually lifted people up your kingdom come your will be done now that's not just words that's not just about praying that's about a lot of things It's about healing. It's about care. What if we became people who pursue the more intrinsic values of life, personal growth and and, and, and deep relationships and serving others and being focused on Jesus, contributing resources and bringing life to a health and, and life and healing to a world, making them healthier? What if? What if? We're doing well. We can do a lot better. We're doing well. We can do a lot better. It is a spiritual practice to do better. We can add one more trait to the writer's list of Ecclesiastes that wise people invest their resources in the kingdom of God. Wise people invest their resources in the kingdom of God. So I challenge you. I challenge you. If you don't go to a community group, I made questions. I make questions up every week for the community groups. Um, if you don't go, download those questions and do the homework at the end. I have a little homework thing at the end, by the way. And uh, do the homework for yourself. Maybe use that as a quiet time study for yourself this week if, if you haven't been going to a community group. And if you haven't been going to a community group, come to a community group. Love to have you. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your your presence here. We thank you that we speak openly about these things. We're not embarrassed. We're not shy. We are boldly respectful of each other. We know that this is a conversation that you have with us personally in our hearts, but it's also a conversation that we have uh, broadly as a family of faith. And we ask that you would begin to take us beyond where you've already taken us. We know that you're progressing us forward. You're, you're moving us forward in these things. And we, and we ask that you would deepen and widen and strengthen our faith, that our faith would be like a steel rod up our spine, Lord Jesus, that we would live by promise and not explanation, that, that when you say that you're going to bless us and that you want us to be a blessing to the world, that you said that to Abraham and you said it all throughout Scripture, that I'm going to bless you in order you to be a blessing. We pray that we would take that seriously, that we would see your hand in every little aspect of our lives, that we would see your care for us, that you would see your love for us, that you would see that you really want to move out into this world and bring your kingdom to more and more and more people. And we want to be a part of that, not just in ethereal spiritual ways, but in real meaty, you know, get down and bite into it, teethy sort of crazy concrete ways, practical ways.
We love you, Lord Jesus. And we want all of ourselves to be about who you are. <laughs> if you're visiting us today,